Welcome to Award Winners. I'm John, joined by my co-host with two hands, David. This is Sunday at the Oscars, where we watch Oscar-winning movies while enjoying Oscar Meyer wieners. It's a celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. In this episode, we discuss the veterans returning home from World War II movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, winner of the 1946 Oscar for Best Motion Picture. David and John proudly present to you the celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. It's a war cleaners. It's a war cleaners. It's a war cleaners. Dave, what's going on? Thank you for noticing my two arms. I really appreciate that. Good, and I'm glad they end in hands. I mean, our audience might not know this. I could have forearms. I could be Goro. Or you could have no arms. No one would know. Squid arms, John. Eight of them. I could go out once a year on Halloween. I love it. <laughs> What's going on with you? So much, I suppose. I quit my job. I've taken three weeks off. I started a new job in a week. What's the best part of not working? I use my phone a lot less. So Apple alerts you as to how much screen time you have. So it's like down to maybe like two hours a day in usage. And I think before it was like three to four, depending on what I was doing. Also, you sent me a note the other day, like Facebook is down. I had no idea. Wasn't even really on the internet that day. So it was great. For a brief shining moment, there was no Facebook and there was no Instagram. And everyone just was having a great time making fun of it on Twitter. <laughs> Let's get down the brass tacks. Let's talk about best years of our lives. If I were to describe this movie, it is a movie about three veterans returning home to their mid-sized city in the Midwest somewhere. They're just trying to figure out what life is like for them stateside. A lot of them saw combat. Some of them were injured. This came out November 21st, 1946. Runtime. It's on the longer side, 170 minutes. Budget. 2.1 million, made 23.7 in the box office, nominated for eight Oscars and won seven, including Best Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Now, I want to know what other kind of scoring happens at this point. Musical? Is that the only other category? Like, what's the other category? <laughs> there, there? there has to be. <laughs> and then on top of those seven awards, it won two special recognition awards from the Academy, which are not Oscars because the Oscar is technically only the statue in the shape of an Oscar. So it also won an honorary award for one of the actors. We'll get into that when we talk about him. The producer of this movie won an award for his body of work, and that's Samuel Goldwyn of MGM Studios. Wow. So you would say this movie cleaned up just after world war ii and it's a movie about people coming home from the war so it was on everybody's mind everybody loved it it was directed by william wyler he won best director for this film he won three oscars in total and he was nominated 15 times he's a huge presence in film we've covered him previously so we did him on ben hur which i believe was our second episode ever john first maybe episode our, ever. our first ever episode and we also covered him in Miss Miniver. Those were two That's movies. Mrs. That Miniver. Excuse me, John. Other movies you might know him from. Roman Holiday. 
Detective Story and Wuthering Heights. His films are known to have a high degree of technical polish. They typically handle human relationships very sensitively. I would describe him as a prestigious director, and a large body of his work was based on novels or plays. John, we've been going back and forth on this next question. Which modern director would you say is best compared to him? He didn't really do any sci-fi anything, which is where you had mentioned Spielberg originally. And I don't actually think that's a bad comparison because Spielberg movies are sensitive movies in many different ways. Don't forget that Spielberg also did Schindler's List. I think that makes a pretty good comparison to Weiler. Uh, He did a lot of different movies, drama, some lighter. I would say the same about Spielberg. And they had that sensibility of their time that made them very popular. You say Spielberg makes movies for the masses. Mm -hmm. I would say Weiler did that in his time. And Spielberg drew heavily from what Weiler had done. And I also believe John Ford. Which we can talk about in a minute, too. There's a documentary about this that I was watching called Five Came Back. So it's five Hollywood directors that joined the military in World War II and created movies, kind of propaganda movies for the U.S. government to show how the war effort was going. And Spielberg looks up to all those guys. I initially pitched Spielberg and we went back and forth on it. And I was like, I'm second guessing myself. So ask my friend, Mark. Mark is the host of movie films and flicks. I'm on there as a regular guest. He also teaches film. And he said the closest comparison that he could come up with was Ron Howard. And even that wasn't that great. Ron Howard's probably a pretty good one, I would say. I think that makes a lot of sense. I I guess what we're trying to hit here is popular movies that are prestigious, and they look really good. So let's jump into some other things about him. He was a lieutenant colonel for the United States Army Air Corps. He wasn't like a bomber or fighter pilot, but he was attached to these units to film the actions they were doing. This film, Best Years of Our Lives, brought Weiler to the attention of the House on American Activities Committee. That is where you get McCarthyism from. Weiler left the country because of it, and he, he spent a year in Italy partially filming Roman Holiday. I think this is what happened, is that the FBI believed that only communists would show immoral acts like excessive drinking and divorce, and that was a no-go. Why were the communists? (laughs) Because they're trying to bring down America from the inside. It's super complicated and convoluted. And I was like, this makes no sense. I do not understand what's going on. So I guess they were saying maybe they showed those American soldiers as weak because they were drinking too much and getting divorces. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that was immoral, I suppose, to do those activities. I guess I sort of get it for the time we have a Puritan movement. Weird things come out of it. It's convoluted. And I like I read the literary article on it. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Just say... He had to leave because of this movie, which I think is horseshit. The screenplay was done by Robert E. Sherwood. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He also served in a war and was wounded. He was a speechwriter for Roosevelt. Very, very accomplished. This movie is based off of a novella called Glory for Me by McKinley Cantor. Cantor was a World War II war correspondent who flew on bombing missions He's also a Nobel Prize winning author. Samuel Goldwyn read an article in Time Magazine about Marines having difficulty adjusting to life after the war, and he hired Cantor to write a 100-page fictional adaptation of the story. Inexplicably, Cantor wrote a 300-page novella that was in blank verse. Essentially, he did not understand the assignment. (laughs) Instructions unclear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, very unclear. And John, I read the book. (laughs) It is 
very difficult to read. <laughs> anyway, Goldwyn was like, I don't think we should move forward with this. What What is happening here? <laughs> but he was convinced to give Cantor a shot to write the script. So then Cantor wrote a script. He showed it to Weiler and Sherwood. And they were like, okay, this project is worth saving. So essentially those two worked together to produce the script for the movie that actually came out. Is that one of the craziest things you've heard of someone just completely missing the point? Give me a hundred page short story and they turn into epic poem, essentially. It just seems like he wanted to write a war epic. If you had to choose one, film or novella, what would you recommend? Yeah, that's that's really hard. Uh, I, I guess I would say watch the movie because you can understand what's happening. There are literally like <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, John, there, there's no, like, no, no. I, it's just like when you say that, it means the book is like uncomprehensible. There, I mean, there, there's literally parts where I'm like, I do not understand what's happening. This is just stream of conscious like descriptions of things in blank verse. And I, I had to look up blank verse like three times and I still don't fully get it. I couldn't tell you really what that is either. Okay, yeah. A pro tip. <laughs> Follow instructions. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> it's good good professional advice. Or ask questions good, yeah. if you don't understand the instructions. Okay, so this movie went up against five films. And let me tell you, John, I am very happy this isn't 10. I'm yearning for the days of only five Best Picture nominees. So it went up against Henry V, It's a Wonderful Life, The Razor's Edge, and The Yearling. Have you seen any of these films? I've seen some of those movies. It's a Wonderful Life. The Yearling, I watched. Dave, do you know what that's about? I have no clue. Okay. So it is a brutal version of Bambi. I'm going to spoil it. Yeah. So this kid, he finds a yearling, which is a baby fawn in the woods after his dad kills its mother, his friend who lives next door. Like they're in this remote woodsy area and by next door i mean several miles away names the yearling that immediately dies the yearling eats their cash crop so they have no money and no food and then his mother who's super mad shoots the yearling wings it so it's like crippled and dying on the ground then gives the gun to her son who it's his yearling to go finish it off end of movie becoming an adult's terrible (laughs) It's like, it's like, Ma, you did that on purpose. It's like, oh my God, you didn't kill it, but it's dying horribly. All right, 12-year-old, maybe like nine-year-old, go kill that deer. Well, I'm real glad I didn't have to watch that movie because I'm not going to do it. It's not my favorite. It's a Wonderful Life you should see if you haven't. And then The Razor's Edge I haven't seen, but Bill Murray did a version of that in the 80s that flopped so hard that he decided he'd quit acting for a short period of time and study philosophy. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Okay. I've seen It's a Wonderful Life and Henry V. I really like It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's a good movie. I used to watch it every Thanksgiving. Henry V. I watched this specifically for this podcast because it was, I guess, generally considered the next best movie on this list at least in terms of the race. Like I think now to currently it's, it's wonder people would think it's a wonderful life is the next best one. But at the time it was Henry V. John, I have a confession to make. Okay. Willie, Willie S doesn't do it for me. <laughs> I understand that. I would agree. I'm, I'm not into the Shakespeare plays either. 
I think a lot of it probably goes by me because I don't understand the English they're using sometimes. It's gorgeous. It does look really good. I'm sure if you are into Shakespeare, it's an excellent film. It just doesn't do it for me. I also find the genesis of this movie very strange. It was like partially funded by the British government as a as a pick-me-up to troops. And it's like, oh, let's make this movie about how we went and beat up the French, who are also our allies now. <laughs> kind of odd. Who's in it? It's a big star. Lawrence Olivier. Yeah, we're going to be doing one of his movies. He did one of Best Picture. I think it's, is it Hamlet? Could be. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, we're we're going to have to brush up on our, our Shakespeare before we do that episode. The net net here is, uh, if you like Shakespeare, check it out. If you don't, you're not missing anything. What did the best this year in terms of box office? That's another super convoluted question, John. Great. Essentially, like, data before 1970 is really sort of untrustworthy, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. But one of them is, is that a movie would come out and then then any future like re-release, it'd be attributed to the date of the original release. So saying what movie was the top grossing that year is kind of hard, but I can narrow it down, right? So I, I checked a couple websites. One of them said it was Disney's Song of the South. Uh, and they said it brought in 65 million, but again, that included re-releases several times. John, have you ever seen this movie? No. Because by the time I was born, it was considered extremely racist and Disney stuck it in the vault. I have vivid memories of watching parts of this movie, but I don't know if I've seen the whole thing. But I, I do have like the zippity doodah zippity a song. I remember watching that dance scene at my grandmother's. But who knows if I watched the whole movie, though? Oh, <laughs> uh, man. So I was telling you this. You can't find it anywhere. Because it's basically been pulled from every Disney source. But there are bootlegs that float around on the internet. And I was debating picking a copy up. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm not going to do I mean, if someone gave me a digital link to it, I would consider it. But I'm not going to spend money on this. It's just a couple bucks, basically. I, I'm curious. What did they do? <laughs> like, What did they do that they want to bury this thing so hard? Uh, a lot <laughs> john a lot um okay. okay so so again that is according to one website the top grossing movie but let's just say no it's not right because like re-releases the other two that could be were one this movie apparently best years of our lives sold 20 million tickets and that's according to a reputable source or it was notorious and i haven't seen notorious i know it's a gangster movie but i can't say much else, much else about it it is a Nazi hunting movie by Hitchcock. Oh, did you watch it? I did. How, what'd you think? It's a spy movie in many ways. I'd say it's very James Bondy without the gunfights. It's all right. I think you can stream it for free on Tubi. Mm, Tubi. I like Tubi. Yeah, totally free. You, could, you should check it out. It's worth watching once. It's also a little surprising to have a Nazi hunting movie eight months after the war ends. They they cranked out movies very fast back in the day when they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So red carpet time. Before we get into the red carpet, I wanted to do two little things that will probably tie into our hot dogs. Do you know what the hot dog summit is, Dave? I do, because I think we covered it like on the first or second episode we ever did. 
uh, but I've forgotten most of it. All right. So President Roosevelt in 1941, so this is during World War II, had a picnic party with English King George VI. This became known as the Hot Dog Summit because hot dogs and beer were served with the king asking for seconds. Also, hot dogs were seen as a no-waste food at the time when resources were scarce. They called them skinless hot dogs because unlike a sausage, no skin on the hot dog. A lot of marketing was done to play this fact up. So if you look at hot dog ads from the time, definitely show no-waste food, skinless. Those are things that they emphasize because that's what people were thinking about at the time. Okay, so moving on to our hot dogs. If you're a first-time listener, you should know that we eat movie-themed hot dogs while watching these movies. David, how's your hot dog dressed on the red carpet this evening? John, I I have a winner today. The last couple episodes we've done, failures. Uh I fully admit that. I've done a bad job. So I found an article in a cookbook that was teaching people on the home front how to ration their food, and they gave them recipes. So I made a recipe from this book and it's hot potato salad with frankfurters essentially it's potato salad with hot dogs bacon boiled eggs and onions (laughs) frankfurters is such an un-american word dave i know it is i know it is uh but that's the name of the recipe we want our freedom dogs or whatever (laughs) they're just hot dogs it just became hot dogs john it's good it's really good it Sounds does good. not look, it doesn't look good. Like I don't want to put a picture up on our Instagram, but it, it's good. It tastes good. Uh, it's going to put some, um, some inches on your waist. So very small <laughs> portions is what I would say. It doesn't sound healthy, but sure. It tastes great. Make it for a next picnic. What did you make, John? I will ask you a question that will lead into this. Dave, do you know where the national world war two museum is? World war two museum. The World War One Museum is in Kansas City. Right, for unknown reasons, but it's... Yeah, there. unknown reasons. I actually don't know. It is in New Orleans. Really? Married in New Orleans in the near future. I was looking at things to do. I found that that's there. On their website, they actually talked about hot dog usage in World War II. So this is where I learned about the skinless hot dogs thing and them saying it's a no-waste food. They actually listed several recipes for hot dogs, And one of the things they listed, which probably wasn't a thing in World War II, but I like the idea of it, is a mufalada hot dog. Do you know what a mufalada (laughs) is, Dave? Something with olives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sandwich served in New Orleans. I'm going to try to remember what the meats are. So it is, it's mortadella, I think a type of salami, some ham with an olive tapenade and provolone on focaccia. So I made a hot dog with the tapenade and some mustard on it. I didn't have a focaccia bun, but I got the recipe and the idea off this website. So I don't know if you've had a mufalata. I love a mufalata. The hot dog, not bad, but it's just more salt. (laughs) It's just more salt is what I tasted. I like olives. Uh, If you don't like olives, it won't be your thing, but it's not a bad topping to a hot dog, but it just makes it more salty is kind of my opinion of that. So it was not a win, not a loss. It kind of was fine. You know what, John? We have done so many of these that it's getting hard to do hot dogs. So I'm going to put a call out there. If you have an idea for a hot dog recipe, you send it to us, please. Because <laughs> I feel like we've gone through one barrel and we're at the bottom of a second barrel. <laughs> I can't wait for our Gone with the Wind hot dogs. You think our Titanic <laughs> hot dogs are just frozen still? <laughs> like... <laughs> 
It's a 12 inch. I mean, you have two options there. You can make a foot long and have it with a head of lettuce, an iceberg lettuce, or you can freeze it. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. We have to decide. So, yeah, I love that idea, Dave. Uh, let's call it a show us your wiener. Send us a recipe <laughs> for your hot dog. Be tasteful, guys. <laughs> anyway, actor facts. <laughs> Dana Andrews played Captain Fred Derry. He did have a really long career, but he did a lot of work on TV. He was a trained opera singer, but he rarely got to use his voice. In his one musical, that this is State Fair, the studio dubbed him because they didn't know he could sing. <laughs> Later, he was asked, like, why didn't you tell the studio that you're an opera singer? You could sing. And he was like, well, the singer needed more money than me. <laughs> So he didn't want to bump him out of the role. That's very nice. Yeah, he didn't want him to cause some guy to lose his job. He's like, okay. Which is admirable. You know, it's okay. (laughs) At the height of Andrew's popularity, his team sent a letter to the mayor of Collins, Mississippi, suggesting that the town change its name to Andrews in honor of its native son. And the mayor wired back, we will not change our name to Andrews. Have Andrews change his name to Collins. (laughs) (laughs) I like that mayor. I do too. Andrews, he was an alcoholic. But he did recover for it, and he did a lot of work with the National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependency, and he was in numerous PSAs. Good for him, especially if he recognized it and did something about it. It's always great to hear. Next up is Frederick March, and he played Sergeant Al Stevenson. The movies you would know him from is The Royal Family of Broadway and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Death of a Salesman, and The Ice Man Cometh. He's one of the few actors who have won both an Academy Award and a Tony. Really interesting things here. The final Hyde makeup in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they used liquid rubber. When they tried to take it off him, it damaged his face, and he ended up spending three weeks in the hospital. It's also also worth noting that he was nominated for Best Actor for that role. (laughs) They're like, sorry, here's an award. Whoopsie! Uh, this is 1931. We don't know what we're doing yet. <laughs> like many other celebrities at the time, he was targeted by the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, because of his supposed leftist politics. So this is the wildest thing about this man that I could find. Okay. He was a University of Wisconsin graduate. Very proud of it. The school named two theaters after him in the campus system. Uh-huh. However... The university changed the names after learning he was a briefly a member of a student fraternal organization called the Ku Klux Klan. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not the KKK you're thinking of. It's a different KKK. They just happen to have the same name. Who picks the same name as the KKK? <laughs> well, remember, it wasn't as prevalent or large when he was in college as it, as it is today. The group did later change its name to something else, but it was just like... People found out about and they're like, we got to get rid of this. This is too confusing. (laughs) Is his name still off the theaters or is it back? Uh, I believe they're gone. It's just been removed. So they accidentally removed him from the thing because they thought he was in the KKK. Turns out he's not. And then they didn't change it back. I believe so. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, those Badgers. (laughs) Those Badgers. Get a better football team. (laughs) Okay. So next up. Harold Russell, and he played Homer Parrish. Harold was not a professional actor, but he did have some very small roles. He received two Oscars, uh, so he won Best Supporting Actor, 
And then he won an award essentially for bringing aid and comfort to disabled veterans through the medium of motion pictures. And he's the only actor to win two awards at the Oscars for the same part. John, do you want to tell everyone what's so special about this guy? This is also how he was found. He was in some movies talking about what happened to him. So Russell lost both of his hands while he was an army instructor teaching demolition work. A defective fuse detonated what he was handling and he lost both his hands. Did you think it was special effects for a little bit? Because I definitely did when I first watched the movie years ago. And then you realize it's actually a a disabled veteran. It's him. It's no special effects. So I knew it was uh, a veteran with no hands before the movie started because you had told me that's the only reason I knew that. So I didn't have that experience. He's very capable with these hooks that he uses to manipulate things. It's amazing. What I was surprised with this guy wasn't a trained actor. (laughs) Like he's very good. He's very, very good in this film. And I was, and I learned later he wasn't a trained actor. I was like, what? (laughs) Like what happened here? (laughs) He was the perfect person for the role. He really was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of context for this movie. It was released shortly after the end of World War II, which ended September 2nd, 1945. This movie was about veterans returning to civilian life. It would have resonated with the audiences of this time around the world because everyone had been affected by the World War. We're going to dive into this movie now. And I would say this is your last chance to jump out before you get super spoiled. Come back after you've seen it, if you made it this far. Let's dive in, John. This movie follows three veterans returning to their hometown. They're basically on transport planes trying to get back to a fictional Midwestern town called Boone City. When I saw it, it kind of is meant to be this everywhere kind of town, a mid-sized city, a minor league baseball team. That could be a lot of cities in the Midwest. Did it make you think of one city when you were watching it? Yeah, I mean, I thought of Columbus when I was watching it because Columbus has a lot of has a minor league baseball team and a lot of corn and soy all around it. What did you think? I thought Des Moines. That's a good. That's good. That was kind of my assumption. What is the city is based on, Dave? The city is actually based on Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, look at that. Wow, it always comes back to Ohio, doesn't it? <laughs> After World War II, Cincinnati was a really big metropolis with people moving to it place. I mean, that's how my family ended up in Cincinnati. Both my great-grandfather and my grandfather, after the war, moved to Cincinnati for work, and they worked at GE. Your guess of Des Moines, Iowa, really close because the author based the name off of Boone River, which is in Iowa. Let's see. So, characters. Now that we've sort of established the location, the characters, Homer Parrish. He's the youngest of the bunch. He's the guy we were talking about with the injuries. He was in the Navy early on in the war. I think he said he was in the repair shop. So he's below deck somewhere. Bomb strikes his boat and he loses both of his hands in the accident. He actually spends most of his time in the war recovering in a hospital away from the front. The movie takes great care to show that Homer is extremely capable with his prosthetic hook hands. I think the idea here is they wanted to show that vets could overcome many of the things that happened to them, at least physically with this. Homer's biggest concerns are that his family and girlfriend will react poorly to his injury. He's just not sure what they'll say. I feel like he's generally a nice guy going through some stuff. The one thing that I was always a little not sure about was his age. Is he like 19 or 20? I think so. It seems he has a lot of high school memories and a high school sweetheart. 
Probably early 20s. It's been away from home for a couple of years, maybe. Feels like he went straight into the army right after high school. Yeah, if he even finished. He's very anxious. Everyone he's spoken to knows about his injury, but they haven't interacted with him. Right, and they haven't seen what it looks like either. He hasn't shared any of that. We also have Sergeant Al Stevenson. He's a middle-aged guy. He's also excited to come back home. He has a teenage boy and a full-growing daughter. He was an infantryman. He saw a lot of combat in the Pacific Theater. He's also unsure what he'll see when he gets back home. So I think Al Stevenson is a little bit of a stand-in for the author of the book. From my understanding, he felt really compelled to find a way to join the war effort. And he was older too. And so Al's like, what? You think he's 40? Maybe a little bit older than that. It's hard to say because he's got a 20-year-old daughter. That's just my note. Like when I, having read the book and watched the movie, I feel like Stevenson is a stand-in. And then we have Captain Fred Derry. He's a decorated bombardier. Just before he shipped out, he married a woman named Marie who he met in basic training. He only knew her for 20 days. She moved in with his folks back to his hometown of Boone City. So I I think there's some interesting dynamics that are going to happen here in a second. And I want to ask you these questions as I was thinking about these things as we went through. So we start to see the characters as, as we go through the movie and who they really are back home, which is not revealed here. So we've got Homer, who is basically low ranking young guy, Sergeant Al Stevenson. He was in charge of people, non-commissioned officer. And then Captain Fred Derry, he's moving up in the ranks quite a bit in his time. Given that, who did you think back home was the most well-to-do? Yeah, I thought it was Fred, honestly. Yeah, I think I did too. I think we made that assumption that since he's a captain, he probably is comes from some respected family or has a father that would land him a position like that. Right. Was that kind of your thinking? That's that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, arguably, he's also the lead of this movie. I know there's three parts of it. I feel like when watching movies, we're kind of trained to see the main character in the most positive light, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, we make some strong assumptions here, and we'll get into those in a second. So these three guys are in a plane coming home. They bond over probably like a two day period as they're bouncing from city to city until they finally make it back home to Boone City. And and they get along great because they're guys that all grew up in the same area. They had a lot of experiences together and are vets. They, they form a unit. When they get home, they ride in a car back to each other's homes. Homer, we get to his house first. His family is super happy to see him, but they do treat him somewhat delicately as they aren't really sure how to handle this new version of their son. This makes Homer very self-conscious. Because what I think is going on subtly is that during the plane trip, you're shown that Homer is very capable with his prosthetics. He can light cigarettes. He can do a bunch of different stuff. But when he gets home, his family start treating him like he's not capable of doing anything. Yeah, I guess they're just not sure. And he hasn't communicated clearly to them either that they can ask him questions. But he's also very comfortable with who he is. At least he was until he got home. And now he's just not sure what his place is. They show him, prior to this, being very capable with his hooks. But when he gets home, he drops the glass pretty much immediately because I think it's the wrong shape for him. You know, then his parents start to baby him a little bit, saying, like, I'll get that. I can help you. When he walks up to his family, they give him a hug. They're happy to see him, but they take a step back and see his hands. You see their faces change. 
because it is a shock to them. His girlfriend lives next door. It's his high school sweetheart. She's happy to see him too. After spending, you know, the day catching up with his family and him just feeling strange. I think it's a combination of him and them. You know, he like everyone keeps staring at his hooks. That's how he feels or being conscious about their own hands. Him not communicating or not being in a situation like this in a long time. It just feels very strange to him and awkward. So he decides to get up, go for a walk. He ends up at the local bar, which is owned by his uncle. The next person to get home is Al. We roll up to his house. Turns out he lives in an expensive part of town and he was a banker. There's this interesting juxtaposition between Al and Fred. So Fred is the captain. Al is the sergeant. Previously, their roles were sort of reversed. In the military, Fred had a higher rank and people had to salute him. Al is not even an officer. He's a non-com as a sergeant. But here we kind of see that switch back a little bit because we now recognize Al is more successful professionally than Fred and better established. The war changed how people interacted. And I think they were showing us that here. And it throws us off a little bit very intentionally. And I think that's a very interesting scene of how they lined this up. As a manager, have you ever had to manage someone who was older than you? Yes. Yeah, I have not had that experience. Sometimes it feels weird to me because you would expect them to be further along in their career. And communicating some things to them is especially difficult when they're saying like, why am I not this? Why am I not that? There's a reason why they haven't grown in their careers. It can be complicated to try to give that feedback back to people. Well, I'm half your age. Here's what I'm seeing and how I think you can improve. And how they take that advice, sometimes they don't. You know, my experience with the couple people that I have dealt with that were older than me that reported to me, I think they had a hard time dealing with that. I reported to someone who was younger than me and then I quit because I didn't know what they're doing. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm sure this person felt that way too, but I was like, here's like a very clear list of things that you can do to improve. And they checked that out the window. I'm like, well, you're not getting a promotion then. <laughs> Folded it up to an airplane, threw it out the window, set it on fire. <laughs> I was just curious about that because the dynamic is, it has to be very strange. I guess I should say, John, like, it's very difficult for me to get in the mindset because I didn't experience the war. And I'm trying to relate it to our experience of like knowing anyone who came back from war and I only know a couple of different people or coming back from from long extended experiences that changed their lives. Difficult for me to do that. I also think here, had the war not happened, Al's like the vice president of a bank and Fred is a soda jerk. You know, that was his job before he went to the war. But in the war, this flips everything around and Fred becomes, you know, a captain and Al's only a sergeant. So just find that to be such an interesting dynamic of just that switch probably happened somewhat frequently i would guess so al is also nervous to see his family and a lot has changed when he comes home and he says to fred but feel like i'm gonna storm a beach because he's, he's not sure what he's gonna get when he comes home his family's very happy to see them he sneaks into their apartment and surprises each of them one by one i think this is a great scene they're all very excited to see him Weiler is really good with creating interpersonal dynamics and they treat people very respectfully and, and tenderly. This is an amazing scene about that because to describe it, um, he sneaks in, surprises his daughter, surprises his son, and then surprises his wife. I really like it. And knowing a little bit more about William Weiler helped me appreciate this scene more. It turns out he's missed a lot since he's been gone. His kids have grown up. They're several years older. There's changes in science that he doesn't know anything about. His son is like explaining things to him that he's learning in school. Pluto's not a planet. <laughs> Atomics, nuclear energy, all those things. 
he's even forgotten how his wife likes certain things at home. What I find the most interesting part here is his dynamic with his wife, how sort of wordlessly they circle each other and they're not quite sure how to interact with each other because they haven't seen one another for three years and they've probably spent 20 years together prior to that. She doesn't smoke. He tries to offer her cigarettes. Their dialogue is really kind of strained. I can't tell if he's trying to joke with her or not, but that dynamic is really, really good. And to see it go from that to showing like, oh, they do love each other, which is in like two scenes from now is really strong. Not only have things changed at home, he's also changed a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a very tense scene that's coming up in a little bit where he makes some mention of basically being in the trenches and able to kill a man. And you're like, wow, this guy's a freaking bank manager. And he probably did some terrible things in the war and saw some terrible things and is still kind of coping. And now he's expected to go along and nothing's changed. Just go back to normal. So he gets a call from the bank president saying, we got a job for you. We'd love you to come back. We want you to give or service loans to the vets that are coming in because the vets now have this GI Bill. He's not sure he even wants to do that. He's like, do I really want to go back to banking after all I've seen and done? And that I think is tough for him. At this point, what did you think his story arc was? I guess I wasn't really sure because he didn't seem out of his mind like he was going to do something crazy. But maybe it was like he decides to be a farmer. He's like, I want to be outside and have my hands in the dirt or something like that. Maybe one of those radical shifts. Kind of assumed that his story arc would be reconnecting with his family and them learning to love each other again. Like it happens, but that's not his main story. I think your point there is a good one. Each of these characters have distinct issues and differences between them so i I think it gives us a good blend so this is the guy with an established family coming back home and everything's changed and he's changed so after seeing his family and getting this warm welcome he convinces his wife and adult daughter to come out with him for an evening on the town because he wants to go out i think he ends up having like 15 (laughs) 15 i think that's a low number (laughs) he was absolutely sauced (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, sir. So they go out and they end up at a bar called Butch's, which Homer has told them is his uncle's bar. So he's like, show up there if you want to have a good time. With Al, we kind of pretty quickly see that he has some survivor's guilt and he realizes how lucky he is that he can come home, go back to his job and have a family. And he knows other guys haven't come back or don't have that support system. Uh, despite recognizing that, he does use alcohol to cope. Captain Fred... He returns to his family home, thinks he's going to find his wife there, but she's not. She's out. We also see that Fred's family, they seem like a non-traditional family. It seems like his father has maybe remarried. That's unclear to me. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. But they all get along. They're appreciative of Fred and very proud of him for what he did in the war. But his, his wife, Marie, is not there. And he asks her where she's gone. She's moved downtown, got a job at the nightclub. Fred's like this this is really weird why didn't anyone tell me and goes off to try to find her at one of these nightclubs because no one knows which nightclub she works at could you imagine marrying someone after 20 days no no not at all are you kidding me i can imagine divorcing someone i married after 20 days (laughs) hmm that sounds familiar uh (laughs) i wish i had a lot more to say here but like it kind of feels like this movie is just setting things up there's no like great profound thing it's that's happening in each scene it's more just trying to get you to empathize with the characters by putting them in situations that people at the time period would have known i agree i don't know if this is a movie trope or not 
but the soldier going off to war that gets married to someone like days before they leave. I asked my dad that and he's like, I don't know how real that is, but I, I never asked my grandparents and my, my grandfather served in World War II, actually in the Army Air Corps, you know, if that was a thing that happened. You know, do you happen to know by any chance if that was a thing that actually happened? I I have no clue. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I have always just sort of assumed it was, but it could be a trope. Yeah, I'm not sure. If someone can write in or tell us a little story about how their grandparents met 10 days before he went off to the war, came back, and then had a family of 10 or something like that, let us know. We're curious if this is a real thing or a Hollywood thing. What's the most difficult part there is like, you don't know that person. And the person that you do know when they come back is going to be profoundly different than the person that left. Yes. Yeah. And that's really difficult to cope with. And that's what we see here too. So Fred is definitely different than when he left. He heads out again into the night to try to find the nightclub Marie is working at. And guess what? Ends up at Butch's bar. Bum, 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 bum. Butch's bar. (laughs) And this is where a little reunion happens. Six hours, eight hours later. (laughs) Homer, Alan, Fred all run into each other at Butch's. It gets boozy. Really, really boozy. Like, if you had to think how many drinks they had, like, Al is 15 plus. Al um, has, like, already been to five or six places that night. And probably Fred, too. What do you have? What do I have? How many times have I drained of hearing that question? You know, Fred, before I went in the Navy, Butch would never let me drink any liquor. He used to read me lectures on the curse of drink. But it's different now. I'm a veteran. Give me a whiskey, Steve. Straight. How about it, Butch? Draw a beer for the Navy. Oh, Butch, I ordered whiskey. Beer. I'm going to take my trade to some other joint where I don't have relatives. <laughs> he's a he's a grown-ass man. If I went to a bar and they're like, you are a grown-ass man, you've been to war, but you can only have beer, I'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> no, I kind of like that. It's, he goes to his family's bar, but they're kind of looking out for him, too. Describing the scene is actually pretty simple. They just get sauced and have a good time. Bread flirts with Peggy. <laughs> right, so that's Al's adult daughter, just to make that clear. He can't find his wife. So they end up hanging out most of the night. They kind of hit it off. They have a good time. Do you think these women are saints? Because <laughs> Al's wife and Al's daughter goes with him to have his friends that he just met that day get sauced. And they drive him from place to place. Yeah, I'm going to answer for you, John. They are saints. And they handle it very well. They don't get mad. They don't get angry. Well, it's also like a Tuesday night for them. <laughs> it is. One, they didn't even know he was coming home. They're like, it's Tuesday, Dad. I can't go out until 3 a.m. But they do. <laughs> I thought the Fred and Peggy interaction was very awkward because <laughs> she's completely sober. And then he's just like, hello, I'm, <laughs> I'm Fred. I agree because she gives him some crap several times. <laughs> he puts his head on her shoulder at one point and he's like, I want you to feel comfortable around me, Peggy. If you feel like asking me anything, ask me any questions. She's like, how's your wife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't find her. <laughs> but I laughed at this scene. I thought I was like, oh, this is pretty good. At the end of the night, Peggy and Millie help Fred and Al into their car and drive them home. Homer, since his uncle owns the bar, his family calls him and says like, hey, you know, can you send Homer home? Worried about him. He sends him home early so he doesn't get trashed with the other two. That night, Fred is put up in Peggy's room. Peggy sleeps on the couch outside because Fred cannot find where his wife is. And he has some, you say like night terrors, basically. Yeah. That are yeah. the nightmares of some traumatic events that happened in the war. Peggy hears the screams, comes in, helps calm him down. Then he goes back to bed. She leaves, goes back to the couch. In the morning, Fred doesn't remember much of the prior evening. 
<laughs> which is great. Always introducing yourself to another person that you've not met after you've stayed in their house. <laughs> Who's making you breakfast? Seem to get along all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I, I think there's this interesting juxtaposition too. So you see three people. You see the camera cut, and this is where I think Weiler is a genius. You've got Fred sleeping, but he has these terrible nightmares. Mm in yeah. someone's bed you've got peggy sleeping on the couch which should be an uncomfortable spot but sleeping pretty soundly and then you have homer who can't sleep at all and i i just think that's a really good character study on the three and showing those three juxtapositions tells us a lot about those characters yeah that's a very good show don't tell example great scene great camera work this is why weiler won for best director here we, we even talked about this a little bit ever have a night out where someone has to help you home? Like, has that ever happened? Uh, yeah, my 21st birthday. I don't know if you were there, John, actually. I don't uh, remember. What did you do for your 21st birthday? We went to four kegs. I drank a lot. My then-girlfriend definitely got me home. I may have slept in Sean's room after we... Where, where was I then? I don't know. Got the door open because he had locked it, but we were like, no way, we're getting in there. <laughs> Um, oh this is after we'd moved out uh it was in the summer yeah actually i think i slept in isaac's room <laughs> okay uh but you you might have been there yeah i don't remember i could have been i don't remember this so maybe someone had to help me home too <laughs> have you and i carried someone home you and i i believe carried two people in our lifetime that was really difficult i remember a random person yeah we were walking down the street Mm -hmm. yeah were you with us when we carried our old college buddy sean home no i think i saw the aftermath of that i remember it was like 10 blocks of him not being able to walk and he was a tall gangly guy and i think it was mike and i but i just remember being so sore and angry at him the next day because my arms hurt because just lugging him yeah seven blocks because he just couldn't walk do you remember i mike and i and i think you were there too the other time was we were walking down the street and there's this like pack of girls barely managing to carry some like passed out girl home with them. They had another few blocks to go. Mike and I tried to carry this super drunk girl back to her house with her housemates, like avoiding the cops because they were like out in the corners. So like ducking down alleyways. And I think when we brought her back to her place, I was like, she's like a mess. I'm like, you should probably take her to the ER to get her stomach pumped. And they're like, no. I'm like, she's like, passed the fuck out. We've dropped her on her head unintentionally <laughs> at least once, if not twice. Like, we should probably take. And they're like, get out. College kids are dumb. Just saying. I mean, not that I was any smarter than those kids were at the time, but college kids are dumb. Uh, I mean, you once told me you were like, our hobby in college was drinking. And, and I thought about it and I was like, oh, my God, it was. I was like, damn it, I wish I had a better hobby. <laughs> we graduated. <laughs> I, I, got, I, mean, I graduated and got a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got jobs. We went to grad school. It doesn't mean I'm proud of my drinking. Yeah, have fun. Be careful. Be safe. <laughs> yeah. I remember one time you and I were walking down the street on, on New Year's, and I think we tied each other together so that we could, like, prop each other up. <laughs> To yeah, make I, it. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of really dangerous things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, and you know, we, you know what we didn't have, John? We didn't have Amelia or Peggy to get us to and from places. <laughs> if only we had Amelia and Peggy. 
now is if I have like two drinks and a night, I'm like hungover before the night's over. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like one and a half and I basically don't drink anymore. Yeah. Nice reminiscing. How does this re- pertain to the movie? We're just empathizing with drunks. Yeah. You just run into your friends sometime and start drinking. Okay. <laughs> so next day, Fred comes to Peggy makes some breakfast. He she drives him back to his wife's apartment. He gets in and he he sees her. But we're gonna cut away from that for a second. We're gonna go back to Homer. As the movie progresses, we see their lives unfold back home. It's it's new for them. It's post war. They're you know, reintegrating themselves into society. Mm-hmm. So Homer has two problems. One, he wants to be treated like everybody else, and he doesn't want people to pity him. David, you've got some scenes where they go through great lengths to show that Homer's capable. You know, do you have a specific scene you wanted to bring up here? Essentially, he goes and practices shooting. One, he's very capable of doing it. He's he's a decent shot, not great. Is he trying to prove to himself that he would have been a good soldier? I, I don't think it's uh, him proving anything to himself. I think it's the director showing us that he's capable of firing a gun still. That's okay. what I think. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. Again, I guess they just really hammer this home that he is extremely capable uh, and people need to recognize that. But there's also some things he can't do, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. At the end of the night, when he goes to bed, his father comes in and helps take his hooks off. And after that, he's kind of helpless in many ways. So they have to leave the door open a crack because he can't open a doorknob if he doesn't have his hooks on, can't button up his pajama shirt. He feels very vulnerable in that state. And I'm not sure he wants a lot of people to see him that way. So I think this is why he's also distancing himself from Wilma a little bit. Although there, she still seems very interested in him. She can definitely tell that he's changed and feels uncomfortable around her, but doesn't really understand why just yet. She's very empathetic and sympathetic though. To set the scene, Homer is getting ready for bed. He has to ask his father to come help him. And his father essentially takes off his prosthetics and then buttons up his shirt. In the scene, it mostly just centers on Homer. And he doesn't say anything. He just he lights a cigarette and smokes a cigarette as his father does all these things happening to him. I think a lesser director would have probably added dialogue to that. and But this one, there was no dialogue. It's just him, the camera really close up on his face. Honestly, the actor did just an amazing job portraying someone who's conflicted and, I guess, scared. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a moment of real life for this guy. And maybe that's why he was so great for this role, is he didn't have to dig too deep to act for this. He could just Mm -hmm. be himself. Homer also takes up a bunch of hobbies, and and he mentions some of these things. We think it's a joke throughout the movie. He's like, I'm going to go learn to play the piano. So we also think this is a little joke, but turns out he really is learning how to play the piano with his hooks. I mean, when that, that scene happened, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. It's amazing. Cutting back to Al. So again, Al's the sergeant and the banker. He's kind of struggling to find his place in the, in the world. And he's given this big promotion, put in charge of GI loans. I guess he's, he's a little conflicted here. He wants to make sure that the former servicemen get their fair shot. But the bank doesn't want to take risky loans. So the bank is kind of telling him, not directly, but they're implying it that we don't want to take on a lot of risk. A lot of these guys coming back don't have any collateral so that if they fail in their endeavors or lose money, the bank doesn't have a way to recoup it. 
according to the rules that the government has outlined, they are supposed to give all veterans who apply certain loans. So a guy comes in and he gives him a loan and then he's talking to you from the bank manager saying like, well, you know, I'm glad that you see this guy is as a um, hardworking person and and that's great, but it's a pretty risky loan. Um, So they're kind of telling him not to do this anymore. So I would say here is that earlier I asked what Al's, Al's story is. It seems like he is trying to find his place at the bank and whether he's going to push back against this institution. About halfway through this film, I thought Al's story arc was he was an alcoholic and he had to overcome it. Turns out that's not really it. Al the alcoholic. Al the alcoholic. I'm not sure if did you did you catch that, John? Yes. I think the other part of it is also like, how do I fit back in back home? I had this job that I'm not sure I agree with anymore because I've now worked with a lot of these people who would previously be declined for loans. Now I know them. I feel like we should give them loans. I think before he might rubber stamp things more frequently, you know, just saying like, nope, nope, nope. Here, he's kind of like, let's take a risk on this person because this is the future of our country. These guys served our country very faithfully. They deserve a fair shot. Yeah, that's really some really good insight that I put to, didn't put together that he might have ignored them previously. That's really good insight. I hadn't thought about that. Or just didn't care, but now he's like much more emotionally involved. Yeah, I mean, I guess the film is saying there's more to risk than having collateral. Or you need to take chances on these people. Yes, I think so. One other thing this made me think of is redlining. I'm sure it was hard for black servicemen to get loans coming back from the war, even though they were supposed to be able to do this. I'm a little disappointed in Weiler here because Weiler, during the war, was asked to make a movie for African-Americans in the country because when they were polled, they actually felt that they would be just as well off under German or Japanese rule. Oh, wow. Which makes total sense, I would say, given where we were in history. So they made some movies to try to show what the Germans and Japanese had said about black people. As he was given this project, he he just said he saw how unfairly treated the black soldiers and officers just the poor treatment of them more generally and declined the project afterward. He's just like, I can't do this. This is, this is bullshit. And I feel like this could have been his opportunity here. I, I would have loved had the, this guy coming in for the bank loan been a black guy, because I think that would have hammered more than one statement home and something that Weiler was very well aware of. And I feel like it was an opportunity lost. That's sort of what I was thinking about as I was watching this scene too. Yeah, where did, did you did you learn that? Uh, so in that Five Come Back movie, they talk about Weiler's opportunity to do that. I guess Five Come Back is a Netflix documentary series about five directors, Weiler being one of them, that goes over to Europe or the Pacific in World War II to create different films for the, for the United States government. And this is like one of the propaganda films that he's going to do and ultimately turns it down after what he experiences. That's in there. That's a great documentary about the these filmmakers of this time period generally and also how they served the U.S. in the war. I would say check that out for sure. Okay. Al is asked to attend a dinner with his boss and he gives a speech. I love the Corn Belt Loan and Trust Company. There are some who say that the old bank is suffering from hardening of the arteries and of the heart. I refuse to listen to such radical talk. I say that our bank is alive, it's, it's generous, it's, it's human, and 
And we're going to have such a line of customers seeking and getting small loans that people will think we're gambling with the depositor's money. And we will be. We'll be gambling on the future of this country. Basically, after his boss tells him not to make these risky loans, he says, we're going to make these risky loans. We're gambling on the future of the country and we're going to win. And it's it's a good speech. What I like about this is, so it starts off like, oh, he's drunk. He's going to bomb this. As the speech continues, you realize that he has a point that he's making throughout this. And then you just have to wait to the end to get to it. And that potentially he's drinking so much because he's nervous that he's going to give this speech and stand up for these people. I think it's worth noting that his boss treats him sort of like a younger younger brother, this sort of family dynamic. It's a really good speech, uh, honestly. Like I, I, I wish I had known about it earlier. Yeah, it's, it's definitely him saying to the investors of the bank, here's what we're going to do, and subtly sticking it to his boss at the same time, who had disagreed <laughs> with this approach before. What I liked about it is that he's doing it in public. So it's like, oh, if you don't agree with him, you're going to have to like disagree with everyone else and stand up and make a scene, which is not something bankers normally do. <laughs> yeah. As we see this too, I, I think parts of the speech were actually out of order a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we see that he is still a little drunk, but he makes his point and somehow it all comes together. His wife is ecstatic that he made it because she's <laughs> actually counting drinks as the night goes on. You see here, he counts them. And it's kind of clear that Al is an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. people are starting to notice. The alcohol stuff, it's the one element with Al's story that I don't quite get. Kind of understand why it's there to sh- sort of show what vets might might be going through. But it, it feels a little tacked on to me, if I'm honest. So you think like they could have had another problem? This is like too generic of a problem? I don't think they needed the alcoholism. I think they could have just stuck with him struggling with the bank and his change back to a banker and how he's going to deal with what he's learned in the war. Fred can't find work at a similar pay to what he was making as a captain in the air force, which is very good money. Although he's very capable and willing to do a lot, he doesn't really have a skill set that's good for a civilian life. So he was a bomber, not super applicable to things back home. A lot of the jobs he applies for, he's not particularly qualified in terms of experience and he doesn't have a trade that he's learned either so he's told frequently like you might need to go to school to get ahead in life his wife marie has become accustomed to a certain level of comfort at home and she and fred really spend the money that he saved from the war very quickly basically fred's like look we gotta we gotta button up here we can't really keep spending like this we can't go out anymore i was i was thinking i'd get a job with the same pay as before but i haven't been able to found it his wife is kind of like really bummed out about this because she was expecting for things to continue the way they had been. And I think she also was hoping that Fred would be a little more fun. It seems like before mm-hmm. the war, he was having a good time. They were having a good time together, which is why they got married. He comes back. She says he's not as much fun anymore. I think he just saw a lot in the war. He's going out at night. Things don't really matter to him anymore. It's also partially disillusioned coming back and not being as successful as he was. Like, have you ever had a job, like, you're qualified for something, and then you have to do something else, and you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Yeah, I have this master's degree, which is very applicable to what I do now. It's in communication. But trying to find work after graduating was impossible. I sent out 200 resumes. I didn't quite have the skill set that everyone wanted, but I had a skill set. (laughs) It's a very certain set of skills. 
Yes. Yes. I could talk about movies, basically. <laughs> and look at you now. Not getting paid. For yes, that. a free podcast <laughs> that I spend my own money on to give to you, the world. That's right. You better be thankful. <laughs> Leave a comment. <laughs> <laughs> Five star review. <laughs> so where where are we going from this? Okay. What I want to ask, I guess, like who do you empathize most with right now? Between Fred, between Homer, between Al. Let me just clarify that question real quick. So are you saying like at this point in your life? John, like, who do you relate to the most? Is it Fred, Homer? I think it's Al to some degree, more in the sense of like, what do you want to do with your life? Do you feel the job that you have can make an impact? Because I think that's what Al is really getting after here is like, what is Mm -hmm. Al's legacy now that he's back home? How can he help people? For him, it is giving these loans to people who may not have gotten a shot before, but he thinks they deserve it or he thinks they will succeed. And I think that's what he wants his legacy to be. He's like, I helped people. Not just I made a bunch of money, but I did something important in life. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, though, making making the money is important. <laughs> like <laughs> Money makes life easier, I will agree. To be honest, like one of the reasons I got into journalism, I was a journalist for so long, because I was like, I'm helping people. I'm reporting this information. I'm giving people stuff that they can use to inform themselves and make good judgment by hiring good council members. But I was broke as all hell. It was horrible. (laughs) But now that I have a I have a decent paying job, I'm like, my job is to get people to click stuff. Sometimes it's not rewarding. There was someone who I used to work with who we were just talking about a job a while ago. I'm like, well, what do you what do you guys do? Who are your clients? Because they were doing some analytics work. He's like, well, I do analytics work for credit cards and it turns out they're basically trying to figure out how to extract more money out of people. I'm just like, nope, not going to do that job. Let's not talk again. <laughs> like, I'm like, what a terrible job. I mean, my job is to help people make better ex- like shopping experiences. There's, there's a difference between making someone's life a little easier and better and then trying to figure out how to take as much money from them as you possibly can. So there's like a, a difference between getting joy and taking. Yeah, I get that kind of feel like it's a struggle that probably at some point a lot of people are going to go through is do you want to help people or do you want to make money you can do both dave it's just very difficult to find that position it's very very difficult okay so after fred marie realized that they desperately need jobs again fred goes back to the soda jerk job that he had before and finds that his old assistant is now a manager there and there's some tension because the roles have reversed and maybe Fred wasn't as nice as he could have been to this guy. Or this other guy's just a very serious dude who also didn't go to the war. I think they kind of make this guy to be a bit of a jerk for staying home and being a soda jerk. I was a soda jerk <laughs> in high school. How was it? Planet Split, got it. It was fine. You know, it it was a high school job. Like, what do you want me to say? <laughs> I made a lot of ice cream. Yeah, as far as high school jobs go, it's probably a pretty good one. Okay, so he's getting his soda jerk job back. He's not thrilled with it. Again, I think he's super capable, but he just doesn't have the resume to get him a lot of the jobs. Eventually, Peggy hears that Fred is working at this. What would you say it is? It's kind of like a grocery store that has a soda jerk counter. She comes down and and talks to Fred, and they go out to lunch. They really hit it off. Fred kisses her and says he knows that shouldn't have happened. Well, he's like, it had to happen, but it shouldn't have. But we both know it had to, or something like that. There you go. That's what it was. I thought this scene was kind of funny, actually, because it's like, she's seen you, like, 
shit faced and then hung over. And this is really the first time you're actually having a conversation <laughs> and you're like, and then he kisses you like a little forward. If you ask me, they seem to get along pretty well. And he's maybe down on Marie at this moment. So he's exploring other things for a moment. Then Peggy tells her father that she's in love with Fred and plans to break up his marriage. That's an amazing scene. I made my mind up. I'm going to break up a marriage. Jaw drop moment, John. Part of me was like, I want to see this happen. Peggy, the nicest person in this movie, I want to see it happen. And then she doesn't go through with it. And I'm very upset about it. Dad basically says to her, he's like, why is it your business to do that? He and his his wife start talking to Peggy, just saying like, look, we fought a lot before. We have our ups and downs. There shouldn't be anyone else trying to do that to us. I think she says, well, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's pretty clear to her that Marie does not love him. And that's... Marie has her eyes on the prize. That is someone who makes a lot of money. Her basic philosophy is if the person she's with has money, she can learn to like them. This is a great anecdote about this actress. Um, I don't remember her name who plays Marie. She was a comedic actress. This was her first dramatic role. And she likes to joke that she won William Wyler his best director award, because if he can direct her in a serious role, he deserves it. (laughs) She's very good in it. She's one of my favorite characters, even though she's supposed to be the quote unquote villain. Yeah. You can definitely see her comedic chops in this movie. Al decides he's going to confront Fred. What's on your mind, Al? Want to borrow some money or something? I, uh, called you to ask you a question. Are you in love with Peggy? Yes. I thank you for a short and honest answer. You're welcome. And what do we take up next? Your wife. What does she fit in this romantic situation? Is that any of your business? I happen to be quite fond of Peggy, and I... uh... You don't want her to get mixed up with a heel like me. I haven't called you a heel. Yet. I just don't want to see her get into this mess. Okay, chum. What do we do now? Step out and settle this thing in the alley? I wouldn't want to recommend that as a solution. I've learned a lot of tricks in fighting dirty. If I got tangled up with you, I might forget myself and break your neck. I wouldn't like that. You see, Fred, I'm quite fond of you, too. Thanks. But I don't like the idea of you sneaking around corners to see Peggy. It becomes clear that Al was, like, really in the trenches in yeah. there. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'll fuck you up. He says that in the nicest possible way. He's like, he's like, and I'm pretty sure you couldn't do anything about it. Were you shocked by that? Because I was. Then it all hit me. I was like, oh, Al was on the ground. He's an infantry man. He's not yeah, up he's, there, he's, like, dropping yeah, bombs. He's like, he's, like, fighting with a trench knife. You're like, wow, okay, yeah, let's not fuck with this dude. The thing that I want to talk about with this scene is really what Weiler is known about. Fred agrees, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go call Peggy and break it off with her. This happens at the same time that Homer plays the piano. So you have this dual moment happening of one character rising and another character falling. And it's both in focus at the same time. And this is called deep focus. And this is when the foreground, the middle ground, the background, you can see all of it. Weiler is known for using this technique to add layers to the film. You're really happy for one character, but you're really sad for another character all at the same time. Yeah, so it's Homer, who's super excited playing Mm -hmm. the piano with Butch. Standing at the end of the piano, Homer is showing Al how he's learned to play the piano. And in the background, you've got Fred on the phone can't hear what fred's saying but you know he's breaking up with peggy it's an amazing scene i struggle if whether this is my favorite scene in the movie i think it is but it's 
very close with another scene we're going to talk about with Fred, like literally right after this. There's a lot here, and I really like it because Homer doesn't realize that Al and Fred are at odds at this moment in time. And Homer's excited to show Al this, but Al keeps glancing over to see what Fred is doing on the phone because he's still mad at Fred. He's not really giving Homer his full attention or any of his attention, really. And Homer can kind of tell. I definitely have had those moments, too, where someone's asking you something and there's still some other moment in your head and you're like not giving them any attention at all. Yeah, thinking about those hot dogs. <laughs> oh, that mufalada. Oh, man. Oh. Sorry, honey, what, what did you say? <laughs> Were you talking about mufalada? No? Okay. <laughs> so then we see, you know, Fred storm out. Fred's savings run out and Marie decides she's going to leave him. I've given you every chance to make something yourself. I gave up my own job when you asked me. I gave up the best years of my life, and what have you done? You flopped. Couldn't even hold that job in the drugstore. So I'm going back to work for myself, and that means I'm going to live for myself, too. And in case you don't understand English, I'm going to get a divorce. What have you got to say to that? Don't keep Cliff waiting. And she's, she's also kind of been going out with other guys probably the whole time. So Fred, then, you know, he's in his job. A guy comes in while Homer is there, and he starts basically saying there was a pointless war and there was no good reason that any Americans should have died or been injured. Homer's like, oh, hell no. The Nazis and and the Japanese were totally wrong in what they were doing. and I lost my hands in this war, and I'm fine with it because I totally feel strongly uh, about this position. And they sort of get into a scuffle, and Fred jumps over the counter and, you know, knocks the guy out. And he gets fired. And then he decides, you know what? I've had it with this town. I've had it with Marie. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go do something else. And this is also where we learn that Fred is a decorated war hero who's been in some very serious situations in bombing runs. They even mentioned where he bombed at some point. And I wish I would have looked it up. I meant to look up that area of the war. But my guess is if we were living in World War II, living at the time, we would understand how bad it was in that area of Europe. That's my guess. He got an accommodation from Doolittle, who is a very large figure in World War II history. Like he did Doolittle's raid, which is one of the most famous raids ever. Everyone in the theater probably would have been aware of this. So this is a big Mm -hmm. deal. And he kind of just downplays it all the time. He's just like, look, I did my job. Yeah, put bombs, drop bombs. That's all I did. Yeah, so he goes to the airport to leave. It's, again, the military airport where he's like, can you fly me somewhere? He's not really sure where he's going to go yet. So the first plane that comes along, he's going to hop on. While he's waiting for a plane, he starts wandering around the airbase a little bit and sees this airplane graveyard. And he pops up into one of the bombers that he used to fly in. Kind of relives some of his memories. And I think this is a really good scene, too, because they show like the missing engines on the plane because they've already been stripped out of there. I think maybe to Fred that makes him uncomfortable because the thing that would have kept him alive and afloat, the engines is gone. And we definitely know he saw some like smoking wreckage of planes before too. He starts to relive some of these moments before someone basically raps on the window of this plane and says, what are you doing in there? Cause they're about to scrap them all. Fred pops out. The guy says, Hey, we're going to turn these into prefab homes. And I think it's kind of a nice moment because there Fred sees that this is the future of what these war machines are going to do is they're, they're going to give people places to live. And this is kind of sword to plowshares moment. 
And I think it helps Fred also see the futures of these planes where, where he's coming from and the, the housing is and what they're going to make is going to be the future. And he asked for a job and they give him one. And what did you think of that scene? I love this scene. It's, uh, it's it, what, what I love about it is it, it feels really claustrophobic because the camera is like zooming in on him as he's in the, the cockpit. Admittedly, like I did struggle trying to understand what's happening. It looks gorgeous, but I think you just hit the nail on the head. What I was struggling with with the scene is the, the images of the engines. I've watched this movie twice and both times I was like, why are they showing these engines? I don't understand it. And now I do. Thank you, John. <laughs> are you saying that he realizes that if there's hope for this plane, if it can be turned around, I can also be turned around? I think so, but I also think he realizes that the war and these war machines that he'd become accustomed to can be turned into something else. And I think maybe that's how he feels. You know, he's a war machine. He's a soldier. He can do something else after the war, too. Yeah, it's really great. I I think it's my second favorite scene in the movie. My first favorite scene is the the piano chopsticks with Fred in the background. Yeah. Homer finally shows Wilma what it's like living with him and how it will be. Specifically what happens when he goes to bed and removes his hooks and mm-hmm. just how vulnerable he is, how he has to live. And she says she'd be happy to help him um, in his life and wants to be with him. And they decide to get married. And what's different from this scene from like a direction standpoint is that you fully see Homer's body. Like in the first scene that shows this, it's really only his face. So this is the first time you see him without his prosthetics on. And it's a good point. So at the wedding, Al appears that he's got some control over his drinking. For me, I think that's because he stood up to his boss, is what I'm thinking this comes from. What do you think? Unclear. I also think his wife is on him a little bit about it and has Mm. said something because she comes over. She's like, what are you drinking? He's like, there isn't a headache in a barrel full of this stuff. And I'm like, (laughs) love it. Love it. Great. I'm going to use that from now on. (laughs) Drinking this water. There's no headaches in this water. Yeah. (laughs) So, and then Frank ultimately decides he's going to stay in town because he's got this job finally. And at the wedding, Peggy is there also. They look at each other across the room. I think it ends with a big old kiss from big them old as well. smooches. Yeah. Do they get married, John? I like to think that they do and they, and they get along because she's been very empathetic with his situation of trying to figure out where he's going to go next and understanding that he saw some really hard things in the war, whereas... Marie, his previous wife, she was just like, get over it. That's right. She did say that. Goes to show that you can't be fixed. You got to fix yourself. Yeah. Or it just takes time. You got to do it in your own way. Help is okay. Help is on the way. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Help is okay. Um, John, I want to give yourself a big clap because we made it through a three-hour movie. Very, very long movie. I made it through it several times. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult script to put together because everything is so intertwined. And I'm excited to talk about other things now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this movie's a good movie. Things I liked about this movie. The main characters are very sympathetic and each has a distinct issue. And I think the purpose of this was to show the GIs who would have watched this movie or even their families that there are many different things these guys might be facing coming home. So things I really love about this movie. I do think it's a gorgeous film. I like the deep focus. I like that. I think there's a lot of thought put into it. I think the awards are very well deserved, uh, particularly the acting award. A lot of the scenes with Homer are fantastic. 
in general, like I think we fit on everything. Like it's just a really, really good looking, well acted, solidly made film that's well constructed. Uh, there are critiques. I, it's not like I, I'm like over the moon about this movie, but it's solid all the way through. We didn't ask this before we start, John, but what was your relationship with this movie? Like, what did you did you know anything about it before we put it on? I watched it maybe five or ten years ago. Okay. I mean, I didn't know anything about it prior to that. Do you feel like this movie has been lost over time? Do you think most people these days have seen it? That's a great question. I think the average person who isn't in the film has not seen it. Because um, I was talking to, like, again, Mark from Movie Films and Flicks about it, and he, like, knew all the stuff about it. But I wouldn't be able to, like, talk to someone at work and be like, have you seen The Best Years of Our <laughs> Lives from 1946? And they would be like, what is wrong with you? I'm going to go watch Shang-Chi. I feel like not many people have... St- of our generation have seen this movie. I asked my dad about this. He hadn't seen this movie either. I mean, he wasn't born in 40. He wasn't born until well after 46. So like, I mean, do you think that's a multiple of reasons that one, it's an older film. It's a war film long. It's very long. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I just think that this movie doesn't come up in like the classic film categories. If you ask people to name their 10 favorite movies, this probably isn't in it. But I also think that they probably have a recency bias. So this probably is forgotten for that reason. Got it. Okay. Okay. When this movie came out, everyone knew it was going to win Best Picture. The race was very, was like one-sided. It was like, oh, perfect timing, really good actors, really good director, really good story. It's good to go. It came up against Henry V, but there was really no race. Like, it was this movie. There was nothing else. It's a Wonderful Life came out this year, too. I would tell you a lot of people have seen that movie because it plays. Every Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it plays on the classic movie channels. I don't know about this one. This is not one that has that kind of staying power. Like, it's not. It doesn't have an annual event where everybody watches it. It's a gripping movie, but it's also slow at the same time. It's a complicated movie to watch to keep track of three different characters who you have to interpret how their emotions are at all times. In modern movies today would just be like, just there'd just be more dialogue about what they're doing and what they're feeling. I didn't think the movie was that slow. I like having watched it a couple of times. It is long though. It's maybe my biggest gripe. Well, let's get into the critiques then. And I want to start off with the length. John, it took me five sittings to get through this film the first time. I get it. I can understand why. Um, I, I think when I put it back on for the first watching of our prep for this movie i probably did stop it two or three times yeah and and what i'm struggling with here is just that i get home at like 7 30 from work have to eat it's a three-hour movie i can't like if i'm gonna start at eight o'clock i'm up to 11 and i can't do anything else (laughs) so it took me a really long time to watch it the first time and i felt like i lost part of the film so when i watched it the second time i really made a concerted effort to watch it in larger chunks but even then, it still took me two times to get through. I, I do feel like there's a couple scenes that could be trimmed down. Before the podcast, you and I were chatting about whether we think characters could be dropped uh, and if, whether that would make this movie stronger. Ditch Al's son. Ditch Al's son. Yeah, he has like, well, he has no, he has no reason to be. No purpose, movie, really. Al felt like the least screen time, least important plot wise to the story. Yeah, you could have Peggy without Al, I think. The other really a critique I had about it, Al, after he has his, he's drunk and he's hungover and he takes his shower in his clothes. Uh, that scene is 
does not need to be there. Like it, it just extends it another. Two, yeah, I think minutes. it's supposed to be some comedy, but yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't fit very well. Like, how does this film treat women? Because I just kept coming up when watching it, and I was like, Peggy and Millie are saints. Wilma's a saint. Like, do they have their own goals other than just to wait for the, these guys to to get better? But that's just one thing I just kept thinking about. I was like, I wish the women characters were a little bit stronger. I understand your point, but I I feel like for this movie, it's not necessary in Mm, the sense that it's really about these three vets coming back. And at the time, there really weren't any women who saw combat. I mean, there there weren't, as far as I know. I don't think that's what they were trying to get across. It's not the story that's being told here. Right. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I get Um, it. Here is a question I have for you, Dave. How does Homer pee with his hooks? Carefully. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> well, what about I, what about at night when he takes his hands off and has to go pee? He. <laughs> it gets complicated. He could probably do it. I'm pretty sure he could manage, but it's like it's going to get tricky. Yeah, I mean, he probably ends up asking someone, or he just sits yeah. down, maybe, and like. <laughs> of all the things in this movie, I did not think you were going to ask me that, John. <laughs> it's complicated. Especially you've got like a zipper and buttons. He'll figure it out. He just doesn't drink anything after six. <laughs> I also had this question too. I think, we, I don't know how many war movies we've really watched. I think a lot of them we haven't got to yet. And a lot of the Vietnam ones, we haven't got there yet. But how does this movie compare to other veterans coming home movies that we've seen or other war movies we've watched? Hmm. Because Hurt Locker is sort of one that we covered not too long ago very different very different because the war is so different and that guy's needs are so different that one's about being addicted to war and this one's trying to get over it would you say this one's an anti-war movie no i don't think this is an anti-war movie i think the entire purpose of this film is to show people what vets are going through and that there is a way for them to overcome it what do you think about lieutenant dan i haven't seen forrest gump in probably 15 years we'll have to do that soon well John, it's the next. It is the next movie. Uh, I thought you were. I thought you knew that. Uh, you don't. It is the next movie, everyone. Coincidentally, that is the next movie, and then we should do Platoon after that. Uh, I don't know if I can handle um, three war movies in a row. <laughs> These are For, pretty. Forrest Gump's not really through. a war movie. How does it compare to them? It's difficult to say because we haven't watched a lot of them. I don't think it's anti-war movie. I think it's very empathetic. It's a very internal film, if that makes sense. Yes, a lot of internal monologue happening with characters that we don't always hear all of it, and we need to infer from the acting, yeah. Winner or wiener? I'm going to say it's a winner. I went back and forth on this, honestly, because the length really, really turns me off. It's it's just so difficult to sit down and watch a three-hour movie. Uh, but ultimately, it is good. The direction really put me put it over the edge for me. If you can fit it in, do it. I think it's also a winner. I don't think the length is a problem it can be hard to find that amount of time in your day i get that i think it's worth watching all right awesome so porn name hookups ah nice 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 i came up with homecomings there you go anyways what else you got what's up next dave i think we sort of we sort of just heard that well up next is forrest gump starring tom hanks and that's about a dude who just experiences a lot of stuff in history he just happens to be there (laughs) generally i have fond memories of this movie but i'm interested to watch it as an adult other than that if you want to get a hold of us you can do so at john at awardreaders.com or david at awardreaders.com you can also follow us on instagram where we do memes and movie reviews 
Also, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review wherever you can. We would really appreciate it. Yep. And uh, anything else, Dave, before we jump off here? Yes, yes. You know, John, what part was the best years of their lives? You know, we didn't we didn't actually ask that question. Was it the war or was it after the war? As Marie said, I gave up the best years of my life while, while the other guy was off at the war. Maybe that's what it means. It's the time where it was supposed to be the best years of your life, but it was not because war ruined it. I want to look forward and end on a happy note like this film. And best years of our lives implies that they have coming over it and they're going to live the best years of their lives. Also a good interpretation. Excellent. So glad we, we have graduate degrees to do this. All right, go out and live your best lives. <laughs>